If you have your Bible, I would invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I'm just going to read a few verses from chapter 9. Um, in light of my absence, not this Sunday, but next Sunday, uh, the route that we're going is I want to be able to stop at verse 19, um, Lord willing, next Sunday. And that way when we come, come back, um, I'll be able to pick up on verse 19. I think it's central and I think it's just probably wise that I do it that way. So in light of that, we're just going to cover a couple of verses this morning and we're still thinking about Christian rights and Christian freedoms. Now, if you're new, we've been working through 1 Corinthians um, all the way since October of last year. So the reason why we're in these verses this morning is because that's where we're supposed to be. So just keep that in mind as we're working through this. Page 811, by the way, in the church Bibles, if that would be of some help to you. So let's listen to the Word of God. We're going to skip around um, just because we've gone through some of these verses. And some of this will be review as we begin, but I think you're going to find it necessary. Because um, the longer I've been in this section, the more important I think this is in light of who we are and where we're at at this point in our history as individuals, as a congregation, and as a culture. And... um, These verses are beginning to mean more and more to me than I thought they would when I first uh, began them. So just keep that in mind. And as always, when we're through, if you have a question or comment or anything that would um, be helpful to you to think to have a good answer to or an attempted answer to when we're through, just uh, make sure we meet together and I'll be able to try to do that with you. So verse 1, just that first phrase, am I not free? Of course, that's a rhetorical question. Of course we are. Verse 12 If others have the right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? Then verse verse 12 again, but we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Then verse 15, have I not used any of these, but I have not used any of these rights? Am I not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me? I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of this boast and then verse 18 what then is my reward just this that in preaching the gospel I may offer it free of charge and so not make use of my rights in preaching it okay so let's bow together and we'll get started with these verses this morning well father as we now turn to the bible we we thank you so much for this privilege And we very much need you to grant us the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit so that we might think properly, we would believe sincerely, and walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And in this, we would ask you this morning that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be guided by your Holy Spirit and therefore be found acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, I wonder if you would agree with me when I say that it can prove to be um, very difficult to live as a Christian in any meaningful, fruit-bearing way in a culture where one's rights are first and therefore on the minds of most. As it would seem, hardly a day goes by when someone from somewhere doesn't mention something about their rights. For example, it's not unusual for a person in conversation to say, you have no right to say that, or to affirm, I have my rights, or I know my rights, or I have my rights, you know. 
We are in these early days of the election cycle when many an enterprising politician is very concerned to tell us that we're losing our rights and with our vote, he or she can help us get our rights back. We have human rights, parental rights, civil rights, equal rights, women's rights, gay rights, animal rights, workers' rights, patients' rights, children's rights, and on and on and on. Now... At their best, they're simply a search for justice. I want what's fair for others. That's at their best. But at their worst, they can simply be an expression of complete selfishness. Forget you. I'll do what I want. I'll do what I have a right to do. So in that one, they just can't smash the idol. They can't smash the idol. Beloved, as a Christian, when our rights as Christians become our ultimate guide, then we have found another God other than the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we have to expose it as such. And certainly in Corinth, they were having trouble with this. And in the two millennia which has passed since Paul wrote this letter, nothing has really changed. What is Corinth, you could say, is Cohasset. We have our rights. We have a right to them. So we will use them no matter what. That's our right. No surprise then, when you look at your Bible at the ninth chapter of 1 Corinthians, you'll see that there's one word, which is the prevailing word, and the word is, I bet you know what it is, it is rights, or right. And so Paul is addressing the question of rights with believers in Corinth, and he's putting himself forward as that example. And so he puts himself forward in the very difficult example of pastoral pay, we'll say, or how a preacher should get paid. So if your Bible's open, I hope that it is, you'll see he, has, he says that he has a right to their financial support. That's verse 4. He has a right, verse 5, if he's married, to take his wife along, and thus he has a right for the church to maintain his wife as well. And he has a right, verse 6, to receive his livelihood from the gospel. So essentially, he's saying it is right for him to expect these rights. Then in the next eight verses, Paul provides five reasons why it's right for him to have these rights. And we won't say much on this because we spoke on this last time, except to say he makes a very clear, sensible argument, hard to argue with, based on natural law. Verse 7, people have an expectation of remuneration when they work. Verse 9, God's law. Verse 11, there's intrinsic justice here. If we've sown the seed, shouldn't we share in the harvest? I mean, isn't that right? Isn't that just? Verse 13, this is the pattern for ministry in the Old Testament. And finally, verse 14, he brings out his big gun, if you would, Jesus. Jesus said this. Jesus, who has the highest word in everything, commanded this. Those who preach the gospel, now listen carefully, not made up ministry, Okay? A preacher is not a motivational speaker. He's not a life coach. His interest is, does not only lie in marriage and family. He's not giving tips. He's not giving advice. He's a steward of a given message, the gospel, and he must be faithful when he speaks it. Okay, so those who preach that gospel should make their living from that gospel. So again, this is right, this is sensible, it's clear, and it's very hard to fight that logic. And just when you would expect Paul to kind of puff out his chest and pull out a deposit slip and say, therefore, in light of all this, 
pay up. Pay up. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that because he's simply not concerned about his rights. And he has deliberately chosen to forego forego each and every one of them in Corinth for the sake of the gospel. That's verse 12. And loved ones, I think that we can agree that that is an, an unusual attitude. And if you look at the back of your worship folder, we have two points this morning. That's our first point. That is an unusual attitude. And if you think about this, by ignoring his rights, he was actually celebrating his freedom. And few Christians actually achieve this kind of freedom because by and large, in most cases, when the Christian is annoyed about something, particularly in the context of fellowship in a local church, by and large, it is what? By and large, it's when a right they have a right to or think they have a right to has been violated or they have not been able to exercise their right. However, Paul can leap over all that stuff For one monumental reason. Verse 12, you'll see this if your Bible is open. We do not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. So what Paul is saying is, my rights are tossed. Paul, who is our example in everything, like Jesus, my rights are tossed so the gospel of Christ will not be encumbered, will not be impeded, will not be slowed down, held back, That's the understanding of the word hinder in verse 12. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. If the gospel is not advancing in a congregation or in our our own lives, you can well be sure that one of the reasons might be that we are so embedded in our rights and issues that are not primary that they do what Paul says encumber, impede, slow us down, they hold us back. So Paul says, if I take my rights, if I use these rights, then I'm concerned that it will block the road for people who might otherwise be the recipients of the good news of the gospel. So Paul is saying, if the gospel is advancing, then by golly, I will get out of the way with my rights. Because you would think, as long as Jesus, his name was being honored, And as long as Jesus was building his church, then Christians could lay down their rights and lay down their secondary concerns. You you would think that. Unless one thinks they have a right for the rights. Paul clearly has an unusual attitude on rights. Clearly, Paul was passionately gripped by the constraining love of Jesus. Clearly for Paul and everything Jesus Christ was preeminent. Clearly Paul wanted to connect as many people as possible, not to Paul, but to Jesus. Clearly he wanted to see Jesus build his kingdom. And clearly this would mean that he would have to lay aside some of his rights. Things not unlawful. So you could look in your Bible and say, see, see, I have that right. He would lay those things down. Not that they were unlawful, but because they were not helpful in the cause of Christ. And so Paul says, I do not want my rights to be the basis of the outsider's ruin. He says, I am my brother and sister's keeper. He says, I'm going to live with myself as last. Do you know how hard that is to do in the United States of America? Do you know how hard that is to do? 
One of the things I read from a funeral service uh, of John Stott, he had two. He had one here in America. He had one in, in uh, London. The one in London, someone who served alongside of him said this, you felt like he had the weight of the world on his shoulders. He was concerned that everyone would know Christ and know Christ correctly. And again, the ultimate exercise for Christian freedom for Paul was the freedom to restrict his freedom. He shows how really free he is by not needing to use his freedom that he really has. Again, he shows how really free he is by not needing to use the freedom that he really has. And that's Paul's first unusual attitude towards his rights. His second unusual attitude on rights was that he didn't want the church to think he was playing mind games with him when he was looking for material gain. We touched on this last time, verse 15. I have not used any of these rights. Then he says, second sentence, I'm not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. In other words, he's not telling them all the things he doesn't want and the hope that they will give it to him. Right? So this is not the letters that we may get in the mail where the minister or the mission tells us how hard everything is and how much everything costs and then says, but bless God, everything is fine. And the hope that we'll get the hint. Thirdly, Paul's unusual attitude was so that the church wouldn't fall into the trap that they think that they pay him to preach. So Paul was saying, this is not a pay-to-preach operation. You see, Paul understood that if he exercised his right to take money for his preaching in that Corinthian context, if he took money from the Corinthian Christians, that church, which was so embedded in its rights, in fact, that church had the mindset that if you could not use your rights, uh, then there was something hugely wrong, hence their immaturity, hence their, their inaccuracy in doctrine, hence their evangelistic failures. Paul says if he took money for his preaching, verse 15b, then he would be deprived of his boast. Okay, what's his boast? Well, answer, you'll see it there. His boast is that he took nothing from them to preach to them. I didn't take a penny from you to preach to you. And so isn't that part of the reason why we give to the work here? So that we don't have to charge the outsider to come in and pay for coffee and pay for donuts and listen to the message of Christ. Isn't that why it's a free pig roast and a free Thanksgiving dinner and a free Easter breakfast and now a free Wednesday at the park? Isn't that why? You see, it would be very hard for me to imagine that Paul, put in our day, would sell tickets to his sermons in bundles. It would be very hard for me to think that, that Paul would give out group rates just to hear, come him, hear him talk. It's easy for me to think that he would say, admission free always. Here's an example, 1 Thessalonians 2.8. So we cared for you because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Verse 9. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. And that was Paul's pattern. Wherever Paul was at, he never took compensation from that place. Money came so that he could live. I mean, he needed to eat and drink and all that stuff. But it was from another place. So in Thessalonica, he didn't take their money. And while in Corinth, he received money from the Macedonian church. Not the Corinthian church. So he could say to that church, square in the eye, it's not about your money. 
And if it were, then the good news would somehow be a hindrance for some. Is he only behind the box because of the money? Is he only behind the box because he gets a check? And in the past few decades, what has been a dark spot in Christianity, particularly cultural Christianity, that guy, that girl, it turned out, was in it for the money. They have five of these and six of those and a real big this and a real big that. Gosh, the gospel pays really good. Or others, this is Paul, would not think that he's trying to manipulate for more, which would make for a horrible attitude on what his legitimate right is. So that is Paul's unusual attitude. His boast is not in his accomplishments, which we're going to learn uh, next Sunday, Lord willing, but that he preached to them free of charge. So that was Paul putting himself forward as an example. You remember that the, the, the uh, example was due to the fact that the Corinthians in Corinth, or the Christians in Corinth, were having trouble understanding the proper use of their rights. They were making a hash of it. They were abusing that. So in light of that problem, Paul puts himself forward as that um, example. And again, he has a very unusual attitude. So what needs to happen then, once you put somebody for, up for an example, then we need to start making an application. We need to make a necessary application. How does this then, this attitude of rights, affect you and me? Because I'm going to take a guess, and I'm going to say by and large, that this is probably the first time that as a, as a people you've heard about Christian freedom to this much detail. So if that's the case, then by and large, we haven't been very good at making application of our rights and the proper use of them as the years have gone by in Christ. So then the question has to come, what about us? We know how Paul approaches his rights. What about us? How do we Christians in Cohasset approach the use of our rights in a way that pleases God, in a way that wins souls, in a way that seeks not to please ourselves? Okay, that's the question. In a way that pleases God, in a way that wins souls, let me just stop there for a second. That's his, the rest of his concern in the rest of the chapter is the church is not winning souls and so he's going to give them a pattern for that in a way that pleases God, in a way that wins souls, in a way that seeks not to please itself. Well, the first thing that we have to do then is we shouldn't pretend that we don't have rights. We, we do have rights. We are not doormats as Christians. I was in a meeting this past week. I won't tell you which one because I had a few. And they were going around the table asking everybody for their opinion. And guess who they skipped? They skipped me. What about my rights? They came back to me. So even pastors have rights. So we're not doormats. But what is remarkable here is Paul doesn't use his rights. He is free not to use them. And this is one of the most subversive things. Those of us who are Christians can do in a culture which worships their rights and worships their freedom. To have them, but not have to use them. So, for example, I have a right to use my money as I choose. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. It's your money. But I heard about a man from the high street who was extremely wealthy, but also extremely generous, and he kept giving large portions of his money away to the work of Christ, to the work of the church, and to gospel causes. He died. This was said at his funeral by a friend who eulogized him. He could have died a wealthy man, but by the grace of God, 
He did not. It's good, right? He had a right to live far above the normal standard of living. He had a right to go to other places and kick back, but he chose to lose his rights for the sake of the gospel. Listen to your Bible, Luke 12. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and and there I'll store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be, Jesus says, with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. I have the right to spend my time the way I like. Of course you do. Indeed, you can spend it with the people you like. But you're also free to give some of it for serving God. Serving God by serving others. You are free to give up your time for the work of the kingdom in this context. As the church is is the only visible expression of the body of Christ on this earth. So you're free to do that. And what about all the lonely people? What's the song? Where do they all come from, right? Eleanor Rigby died in the church and was buried along with her, with, with her name. Nobody came to her funeral. What about the people who are just so hard to get along with? They're God-made. They're God-loved too. What about the people who don't look like you? Who is going to give them some time? Who? I have a right to be me, to express myself as I wish. By the way, if you have a, if you have a strong ego and a large conscience, you, you could run havoc in a place like this. Because most of us don't have strong egos and most of us don't have strong conscience. I have a right to be who I was made to be, to express myself as I wish. Yes, of course you do. But don't forget Christian graces. Love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and gentleness and, and self-control. I have a right for a holiday. I have a right to go away on a holiday. I have a right to take long holidays. Of course you do. You worked hard for it. But you also have the right to step away from Pleasantville for a moment and keep your hands to the plow in the place where God put you. I always have a question for for people who leave. Do you think what happens to those who you leave behind? Do you think about what happens to those you leave behind? I have a right to advance as far as I can in business, in mind, or by my employer. Sure you can because you're a real go-getter. And it might be, well, the Christian thing you can do. But I have known people who have not sought advance or promotion so the gifts that they've been given can be fully exercised in God's church. I've known people who have said no to promotion because it would hinder the work for Christ in their church. I've known people who said to their vocation, then my time here is done. So they can leave that place and spend the remainder of their time serving Christ, advancing the gospel in the church. I've known people like that. And you see, because on occasion, on rare occasion, when someone steps aside from their employment, from their business, for the sake of the gospel, it very well shakes the world. Because it tells the world that Jesus is king. And it's going to be a very healthy reminder that Jesus, and not our job, is Lord. You see, what Paul is doing, he's showing us live with the gospel as more important 
to you than your rights. Live with the gospel as more important to you than your rights. Because when the Christian culture says we and our rights, our God-given rights, are the center of our universe, the result will always be this. Self-absorption that leads to emptiness and meaninglessness and gospel decline. I'm going to say it again. When the Christian culture lives with our rights at the center of our universe, the result will be self-absorption that leads to emptiness and meaninglessness and gospel decline. Live with the gospel as more important than your rights. That's the Christian way to live. That's how Jesus lived, wasn't it? He had a right to glory. He chose suffering. He had a right to justice. He took injustice. He had a right for the respect of others. He endured their mockery. He had a right to a life of pain-free ease. He decided to obey his Father in heaven and go to a cruel, horrendous death. He had a right to unbroken, fully satisfying relationship with his heavenly Father. He put himself forward to take on a God-forsakenness that no Christian will ever have to know. He takes on the full fury and the full force of God's wrath, not on his sin, but our sin. Jesus lived and died determining that the gospel was more important than his God rights. The gospel was more important than his God rights. So how can any sensible Christian do otherwise? Listen to your Bible, 1 John 2, 6. This is how we know we are in him, in Christ. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Cultural Christian, as sometimes I can be, sadly, cultural Christian, Jesus loves us too much to let us stay that way. Because each time we live with our rights as a distant second, each time we live with the gospel as more important than our rights, we chip away at the muddle-headedness of those who live with the adultery of their rights as their God. Those who live that they'll fight for anything to keep their rights except for gospel advancement. We chip away with those who live under the notion that the exercise of their rights is the supreme basis of their happiness and their usefulness. We chip away at the sin of self-exaltation at the expense of others and the expense of mission because we cling to our rights. We chip away at the sin of thinking ourselves at the center of the universe and that all we have is because of ourselves so we hold on tightly to that which we will inevitably lose. When we live with the gospel and its advance as more important than our rights, we will reflect in our own, albeit small way, the motto that we heard uh, last week from the Nantucket Humane Society. Remember that? There was a group of people who volunteered themselves at great risk to save the lives of those who were shipwrecked at sea off the coast of Man Massachusetts. Remember their motto? We have to go out, but we don't have to come back. We've got to go out, but we don't have to come back. Live with the gospel as more important than our rights. And by the way, as the years went by, the Humane Society changed. 
First, first the Coast Guard came in, and for a while it was the Coast Guard and the Humane Society working side by side to save lives. But eventually the idea which carried the day was, well, let's let the professionals take over. They're better trained, they have more time, they get paid. So the volunteers stopped going out to save lives, and the rest I'm going to quote to you. A strange thing happened. They couldn't bring themselves to disband. I'm told that the Humane Society still exists today. The members meet every once in a while to have dinners and enjoy one another's company. They're just not in the life-saving business anymore. And I imagine that's fine. The Coast Guard can probably do a better job than they could do saving lives. No problem. And the Humane Society has every right to meet together and enjoy each other's company. It's fine for them. It's just that for us, the church... Nothing's changed. There is no group that can replace the church. We can't hire out. You and I will always be the most effective way to see family and friends and enemies and colleagues and co-workers and neighbors and on and on. To see them discover the life-saving power of Jesus Christ. You and I will always be the most effective way to tell the watching world that Jesus saves. But we have a right to go, we have a right to do, we have a right to say, and we have a right to this. Yes, loved ones, you have all kinds of rights. However, we have a duty. And if the church of Jesus Christ ever pulls up or tries to hire out, if the church only lives by its rights, if we just enjoy our warm and family-friendly fellowship meals together, that's a mouthful, isn't it? If we're only concerned about our own existence and then using service as a kind of bargaining chip with God or with others just to appease our guilt, we won't be saving people anymore. We will not be doing our duty. We won't be doing what we were called to do. And then the danger is, is that we can so live with a sense of entitlement. We can have our nice gatherings and feel good about feeling good, aiming for Pleasantville. It's our right And all the while, no one is asking the question, is the church of Jesus Christ at West Cohasset Chapel still in the life-saving business? Is the church of Jesus Christ at West Cohasset Chapel still in the life-saving business? Have you ever saved a life yet? Saved a life yet? Would to God the answer always be yes. Listen to Jesus, John chapter 5, verse 30. I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. John the Baptist, John chapter 3, verse 30. He must increase, I must decrease. Paul, Philippians 3, 7. I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. So I sincerely mean this. By and large, this congregation has many tremendous qualities. By and large, this is a successful group. I've rubbed shoulders with you now for seven years. You are successful people. I just hope you want to be successful in the right things. In the most important things. In the things that matter most. Verse 18. What then is my reward? Just this, that in my preaching the gospel I may offer it free of charge and so make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. Point number one, an unusual attitude. My rights are real But when it comes to the gospel of Christ, they just don't matter. No rights, no problem. 
a necessary application. How do we flesh this needed principle out as Christians? How do you do it as a man, as a woman, as a dad, as a mom, as a member, as a worker, as a retired person, as a child of the living God? How do you flesh that out? That's our question. And we're going to stop here. It's a holiday weekend. We have a few more verses, but as I said, we're going to save them for next time. And then, Lord willing, when I come back from sabbatical, 19th chapter or 19th verse of chapter 9, that's what we'll pick up. But let me close with this. If you've ever gone upstairs to my office, you'll notice that I have no pictures hanging up on the wall. I have many reasons. They're probably wrong. If I told you, you would probably think I'm weirder than what you might think of me now. But if I were going to hang up some pictures, there's likely four that I would hang up. Let me just get three of them for you. You can't see them, but it's okay. So the first one is probably my favorite painting ever. It's, it's um, The Starry Night, Vincent Van Gogh. Remember Don McLean's song, They're Not Listening. They would not listen. They would, they're not listening still. Perhaps they never will. That's the picture that inspired that song. So Mr. Van Gogh painted this picture when he was in an insane asylum. And the reason why I like this picture beyond its beauty is it reminds me that in, in our darkest moments, we can make awfully beautiful things. In our darkest moments, we, we can produce some of our best works. So that's why I like this painting. The other is not a pain, painting, but it's a poem. And it's um, Mr. Fletcher's The Land of Beginning Again. Let's just let me read the first verse to you. I wish that there were some wonderful place called the land of beginning again where all our mistakes and all our heartaches and all our poor selfish griefs could be dropped like a shabby old coat at the door and never be put on again. And so I like that because isn't that the gospel? I mean, I have to go to the land of the beginning again every morning and, and usually every afternoon and certainly every, every evening. The third one, which I didn't bring because I don't want you to see it, is, a, is actually a certificate my father-in-law gave me the last day that I worked for him. And on it, he wrote about three wonderful paragraphs of what a tremendous worker I was. And he was so darn nice and it brought me to tears. I don't want you to see it. <laughs> but if I, if I had it, the nerve to put stuff on the wall, I'd put it on the wall. Then the last one. This one is made ready to go on the wall, isn't it? It's just ready to go right now. It's not going to, but it's ready to. This is F.W. Borham's poem. This is what he says. Someday my life's little day will soften down to eventide. My sunset hours will come and then I know that there will arise out of the dusk a dawning fairer than any dawn that has yet broken upon me. Out of the last tints of sunset there shall arise a day such as I shall have never known before. A day that shall restore to me all that the other days have taken from me. A day that shall never fade into twilight. And the reason why I like this last picture, probably best of all, is that it reminds me that the Bible is right. I can lose my rights for the sake of the gospel. I'm free to lose them for something far better than any freedom I can enjoy in my fallen flesh in this fallen world. And I don't pretend to have this down. I've got a long way to go. But I know it's necessary 
Therefore, under God, I have to try and do this day after day after day so that nothing, nothing, not even good things, not even my rights will hinder the progress of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If I were you and I was sitting in the chairs this morning, one of the things I would definitely do is I would take stock of my evangelistic life. And if I find myself really low, then I would at very least humble myself enough to think, how far are my rights taking me? And it would be a good thing to lose many of them for the sake of the gospel of Christ. Let's bow together and pray. Well, Father, we give glory to your name this morning. We sure thank you for everything you've done and everything that you've given us in light of the great truth of Jesus Christ. We thank you for Christ's example. He did everything perfectly. If, if there was ever a life that lived life right in this fallen world, it was, it was Jesus. So help us to be mindful and think about Jesus as we carry ourselves in the day. Help us to be willing to lose our rights again and again and again so that our Christian duties, they shine like stars. Now may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be ours both now and forevermore. Amen.